Our passage uh, uh, today in Christmas Eve is going to be coming from Matthew 1. You know, two of the four Gospels have a birth narrative. Matthew and Luke. Mark just kind of starts as an adult. John is kind of philosophically in eternity past. But Matthew and Luke have birth narratives. And uh, we're going to be looking this week at Matthew's birth narrative. This one, in many ways, gives us the backstory behind Christmas. So, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel. And Shiltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. And Abihud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Church, I know some of you probably already are thinking, what in the world is he going to say about that list of names? Church, it is an exciting passage, as you're going to see. Now, two questions right off. One, why does Matthew alone among the four gospel writers begin with this genealogy, this list of names? I mean, some of you are into genealogy, but, you know, it probably wouldn't start your book that way, the life story that way. Why start with the genealogy? Mark, Luke, and John don't, though Luke concludes one later in chapter 3. Why does he start there? And secondly, more importantly, in a Jewish genealogy, patriarchal society, they would normally just list the husband, the dads. Why does he list five women? And why those five? Now, we get the fifth one, Mary. I mean, that's the mother of Jesus. I mean, she gets in the list. But why the other four? That is going to be a story. All righty. The first question, why include it at all? Because Matthew wants to underscore and set a tone right from the outset. This is history, folks. This is not. He doesn't start like this. Once upon a time in a far, far away land, he doesn't start that way. He starts, now this is the record of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Everybody knows David, the king, the glorious king of Israel. And he's the son of Abraham, the founder of the Jewish people. He is in the line, and here are about 
30 or 40 of these descendants, 40 of them. So he begins listing them. He is underscoring it. It's history. Uh, let me see if I can help us get a little bit more of the feel for it. There was a missionary, goes to a tribe, didn't have the gospel, didn't have their own language. In fact, they didn't have a written language. So she's going to give them a Bible in their, their language, a New Testament. She learns the language. She uh, creates a writing system for it, alphabet for it, and reduces it to writing. And then she begins translating. By 10 years of work, arduous work, she has, uh, you know, a part of Matthew's gospel ready to go. She doesn't want to wait till she has all of Matthew's gospel. So she takes an abridged form without the genealogy. She starts right after that and, uh, you know, goes to press. And one day the truck comes and delivers these, these copies of the gospel of Matthew. With great excitement, she gives, one of the gives those to the people who she's taught to read and including the chief and eagerly awaiting, you know, his response. Because in a tribal world, you know, whatever the chief does, that's what everybody does. Okay, waiting his response, no response. I mean, she's labored 10 years. Can you imagine? No response. She keeps laboring. She keeps working. She gets uh, all of Matthew translated. And, uh, you know, another copy of it is printed and shipped there, and they've got their copies. She gives the chief another one. And not too long at all, he comes running into her hut. And uh, you mean to tell me all of this time, this Jesus you've been talking about is real? And this genealogy just underscored it in, her, in his mind. Okay, this is a real person in space-time history, not a fairy tale character. Matthew underscores the historicity of this whole book. All righty, the second question, why these women? In a very patriarchal society that normally would just list, you know, the husbands, why include women and especially why these four? Be asking yourself, why Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah? We're going to see. About verse 3 or 4, we pick it up. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, he hadn't been saying Abraham was the father of Isaac by Sarah, and Isaac the father of Jacob, you know, wasn't listing the, the, the mom's names. But when he gets to these twin boys, why does he put in by Tamar? Well, you should know this about the Gospel of Matthew. That gospel, more than the other three, uh, was particularly slanted towards a Jewish audience. If, if you're aware of that, you can kind of pick up clues throughout. But these are, this is written to Jewish people who had become believers in Christ. They would know the backstory of Tamar. Genesis 38 tells us that tale. This is what happens. Judah, one of the 12 you know, leaders, you know, one of the 12 tribes of Judah, not the oldest brother, but the main brother in many ways because uh, he was the leader, and the prophecy was that the Messiah one day would come through that brother, not the oldest Reuben, not Joseph, not Benjamin, through Judah. All righty, this is what happened to Judah. He has three sons. The oldest marries uh, a woman by the name of Tamar, and he's a wicked man, ungodly man, and God takes his life. He dies young. In that day, this is what you did. If you had a brother dying without a child, then the next brother marries her. That happened. This brother was just as bad. And he dies early too. God takes him early. So, okay, here's Judah thinking, I've lost two of my sons to this uh, married to Tamar. I've got a third son. He's not of age yet. You've got to give him to her to be married one day. But 
She's trouble. He was superstitious. She is thinking it's her fault somehow. And so this is what he does. He says, you know, Tamar, just be patient. When our third son grows up, you know, he'll be your husband. Well, time goes by. He grows up. No husband. He does not bring her to her. So Tamar uh, decides to take action, and this is what she does. She knows the route that Judah sometimes takes, and she dresses as a prostitute, disguises herself, places herself along that path, and just as she had hoped, Judah stops and propositions her, and for payment, he didn't have payment with him, so this is what he did. He left his ID card, which in that day would be a staff and an insignia. He left that with her and said, I'll pay you later. And uh, later came, he sent payment through a friend, and oh, there's no prostitute here. And, and so it just, okay, fine. Okay, then Judah, here's the story that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. Okay, this is his chance to get rid of Tamar so he didn't have to give his third son to her. Hey, stone her. That was common, you know, practice, you know, stone her. And she says, okay, that's, uh, that's the law, but I am pregnant by whosoever this staff belongs to. Brings it out, oh, that's Judah's staff. And, and of course, you know, he'd been busted and, uh, you know, wave off that stoning. And Tamar has twin boys and the Messiah one day is going to come through one of those twin boys. And so isn't it interesting that God doesn't give the names of all the moms, but when he gets to this one, Tamar, he does. And um, why does he do that? I mean, is God not uh, establishing that he uses flawed, broken people for his purposes? Does God not just sort of declaring at the outset that he is the God of grace and he uh, loves flawed, broken people who mess up big time, like you and like me, and that he uh, doesn't write those folks off, that he covers their sin and restores them and pours out grace upon them. That's the kind of God he is. You know, for us to, uh, for the Jews, you know, to be reminded that, okay, the, their Messiah is going to come through the line of, of this incestuous, fake prostitution relationship. You know, that's a little bit like, you know, uh, the Star Wars episode where Darth Vader says to Luke Skywalker, I am your father, you know, the incarnate evil here, and, uh, you know, the, the good character. That's the line he came from. You know, we could do a lot worse than Tamar, by the way. We put Manasseh in here. Manasseh just slaughtered tons of people. He was almost like the Hitler of the Old Testament. God is not ashamed to put people like this in his record because God doesn't simply deal with perfect people or none of us could come to this church this morning. This is a church full of completely flawed people who are the recipients of the grace of God. And God didn't have to underscore this with Tamar, but violating all social norm, he is drawing our attention indelibly, strongly to the fact that he is a God of grace, and even his Messiah comes in the line of imperfect, flawed people who are the recipients of his grace. Church, if this morning you've been a believer for some time, but you've been kind of walking around in a cloud of guilt and shame because you've messed up big time, look, Lay that guilt and shame away. That's all about religious pride. We don't do religious pride around here because we don't have any. We are all recipients of the gospel of Jesus. 
And when our sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. And because of that, we want to please Him, give our whole lives to Him. But His grace is bigger than your sin. And this morning, as, as God begins His gospel of Matthew about the story of Jesus, He underscores that for us. Christmas is all about the grace of God that covers your sin. And that's good news. All righty. Who's the next person that he includes, surprisingly? Well, it's Rahab. All right, let's find out about Rahab. Verse 4, uh, down with uh, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now, who is Rahab? Well, uh, by the way, every generation is not named, just selected once. That's part of genealogy stuff in this, this world. Okay, we're about 400 years in advance. Uh, the Jews are just about to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, and God tells them, the first city that I want you to take is Jericho. Rahab lived at Jericho, and Rahab was a prostitute. She wasn't somebody faking to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. But the people of Jericho had heard the stories about what the God of Israel had done for them and delivering them from slavery in Egypt and getting them over here. And she believed, she believed this is the one true God. So Joshua, the leader after Moses, sends two spies to Jericho. They meet Rahab. Rahab says, oh, you're Israelites. We've heard about you guys, and I know y'all are going to destroy our city. Would you protect my family when you do it? And they said, yes, you, you hide us and protect us, and when we destroy the city, we'll protect your family. And that happened. And then apparently after that, Rahab, the foreign prostitute, marries one of the Jewish guys, and they have a, a son, Boaz, and through that line comes the Messiah, or is going to come the Messiah. What is God doing? Uh, why would he choose uh, of these four women, the first two, one incestuous relationship, and the next one a prostitute. Is he not underscoring that his grace is bigger than our sin? That you don't have to be a perfect person with all of your ducks lined up and your act together to, to have company with God, but he is the God of grace and mercy to sinners. You know, I love Romans 4, 5, because that verse says that Christ died for the ungodly. That includes me, and that includes you. I thank God that Jesus didn't come to die for the godly, because that wouldn't include me. But he came to die for the ungodly. And we are just like Rahab, uh, Ju uh, her husband, uh, Judah, Tamar. We are in need of grace. And the message of the gospel, God is subtly but unmistakably underscoring he is the God of grace. His grace is bigger than our sin. You think perhaps that because you have sinned so horribly that God can't use you anymore. Not so. He'll even put flawed people in the line of the Messiah when he comes to this earth. Okay, we've seen two women named. Now, we got the fifth woman, Mary. We, we know why she's in there. She's mother of Jesus. But why these other four? Well, the first two, uh, you know, um, pretty bad sin sort of situations. What about the third one? That's a little different because that's Ruth. Why is she there? Well, let's read about Ruth in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So, I mean, he's not including every mom. Why Ruth? She was a godly woman. She uh, has a whole book named after her, the book of Ruth. 
Uh, why is she in the list? Well, the thing about Ruth is that in a very, um, in a people who had such uh, uh, fierce loyalty and pride that they were God's chosen people, which they were, um, at some point it slipped out of their heart that God didn't care about other people. And, and they began to, to not care about the Gentiles. In fact, a common Jewish prayer daily was, Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. And, and, and after a while, they, they just largely didn't care about Gentiles. And isn't it interesting that when God includes all the ancestors and descendants, you know, ancestors of Jesus, that he includes this Gentile woman, and not just includes her, but singles her out for special mention. And is God not saying, I'm not just the God of the Jews. Yes, they are my special people. They are special to me, but I'm not just the God of the Jews. I am the God of all the peoples on the earth, and I care about them. And, and in fact, as the story turns out, not only is Ruth a Gentile, non-Jew, like just about all of us, um, but Tamar, she was non-Jewish. And Rahab, I mean, she was in Jericho. She wasn't Jewish. So the first three women named weren't Jewish at all. And is, not, is God not subtly giving the message that he gave explicitly all through the Old Testament? I am the God of all the peoples on the earth. By the way, church, that, that would just be sort of a, a, a challenge to us. We, we can't in condescension, you know, look down on the ancient Jews because uh, the natural tendency for human pe peoples is to be ethnocentristic, where you care about the people like you. They look like you. They talk like you. They vote like you, especially that one, and, and that the others are kind of on the outside. And, and uh, God's heart is for all the peoples of the earth. We care about the refugees. We care about ISIL terrorists who desperately need the gospel. We care about all the peoples on the earth. God, in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, so far has given us three women, all three are Gentile. He's going to give us a fourth one. We don't know if Bathsheba is Gentile or not, but we know her husband, Uriah, was Gentile, so I would take it. She's Gentile too. All four, except Mary, were Gentiles. I am the God of all the peoples of the earth. The living God is a missionary God. He cares about all peoples, including us. All righty, one more woman. This is the best of all. Uh, get this in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now that is so interesting because here he doesn't use the name Bathsheba, but the wife of Uriah. What is God doing here? He is not only bringing up the fact that David, you know, the hero of Israel, the greatest king, that David, you know, messed up big time and he's in the line. His uh, wife, Bathsheba, she messed up big time, but not only with adultery, but with murder. Not just by Bathsheba, but by the wife of Uriah, whom David had killed after getting his wife pregnant. What's God doing? God's not ashamed to admit that the, the heroes of the Bible are flagrant sinners. Because the real hero of the Bible is God alone in His grace. None of us are heroes. And none of us are without sin. And you know what we tend to do, I find, in the Christian church? 
is that, man, David's a little head scratcher. Man, he could have such brilliance and write Psalm 23 and Psalm 103 and was a great king and could be such a godly man. But bottom line, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. That's the bottom line. That's not God's bottom line for David. God includes David. God wasn't through with David. There were second chances for David. And in fact, when Jesus Christ comes to the planet, he calls Jesus son of David. That was the real David, the one who had a heart for God. You may have messed up. And you may be living under a cloud of guilt and shame. And you may be, you know, sort of no good to the kingdom of God because you feel like you're not worthy. Look, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the way God treats people. He is the God whose grace is bigger than your sin. Yea, God. Some of you may have grown up sort of thinking like Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, all of this was about religion, about earning it, about being good enough. The genealogy alone tells us it's not, it's not about being good enough. It is about flawed people who mess up big time and the grace of God that covers all their sin. So we see God's message to you and me. I mean, to include these four women, uh, these four examples, to include a Judah in the, relation, in the genealogy, to include a David for crying out loud, is Jesus not underscoring that this is the God who cares about all peoples of the earth and he forgives our sins and he wipes the slate clean and he is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the millionth chance. And he is the God who did not come for good people. He came for sinners like us. And this is the gospel. And if you have sort of taken yourself out because you are feeling so guilty in condemnation, whose voice have you been listening to? It's not God's. The voice of God says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says my grace is bigger than your sin. This morning, guys, uh, Christmas is a message of grace. The gospel, the Bible, Jesus, it is all about grace, not about religion. It is about recognizing the grace of God. Now, some of us this morning, um, truth is, we've never sinned big time like David did, and, and, and Lord willing, we never will. But some of you can have some condescension towards people like that. Man, too bad they didn't. If you have any condescension, uh, I don't know um, if you understand the gospel because we are all sinners, desperate sinners in need of a Savior. And I need it just as much as David. And so do you. And this is the message of God. I am the God of grace. Receive my grace. But church, one, one final step that not only would God have us receive his grace, major on his grace, champion his grace, but he would have us dispense that grace to other people around us. Now, if we ever need that, uh, it's especially at Christmas because people can be difficult, especially at Christmas. And, and a lot of us, you know, we would like to have kind of this dream in our mind that, you know, at Christmas time to have the perfect family. Friends, there is no perfect family. Uh, Jesus did not have a perfect family. He's perfect, but he did not have a perfect family. Neither do you and neither do I. God uses 
people from dysfunctional families like yours and like mine. He is the God of grace. And it's all about him. And so this Christmas time, let's dispense grace to those family members who are less than perfect, just like you are and just like I am. Let's be receivers of grace and let's be dispensers of grace because that's what Jesus is all about. Stand with me, please. Friend, if you're in the room and you have never received this grace, this is your moment. Thank God this is not about being good enough, about being religious enough, but it is about sinners receiving the gift of grace. Breathe a prayer, dear friend. Jesus, come and save me. I need a Savior. And he'll do it. He'll do it. Lord, thank you for the grace of God at Christmas. Lord, I pray that would be the center of our worship this coming week. I pray for all of us in Christ's name. Amen.